hello there. So, unfortunately, the audio was not recorded today. We had just a little technical difficulty, and then I usually hit record on my phone up at the pulpit, uh, but I neglected to do that as well today. So, what I'm going to do is teach through what I taught this morning so that there wouldn't be a gap in what we had covered. Uh, we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, and we're, we're going to go through verse 11. This is the Word of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were being led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are a variety of workings, but the same God who works everything in every one. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to someone else, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another, the workings of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to someone else, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the translation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. So this morning, since we had to use a week or two to lay a bit of background. I want to double back to a few of these verses and reestablish what's being said by the Apostle Paul. Paul's letter was to the early Corinthian church, which Paul founded himself likely around 50 AD. And he's writing this letter to those people around 53 to 54 AD. Now, this church was just a toddler. These were all baby believers. And only four short years ago, they had been entrenched in pagan practices of the worst kind. They had been raised in a culture that believed in many gods, we call that polytheism, and various kinds of spiritual manifestations. Communion with their old gods, which are demonic, came through the senses, bowing to the idols they could touch, eating meat sacrificed to those idols, getting drunk for the purpose of opening their mind to the deities, which again are demons, speaking in ecstatic, repetitive utterances to commune with them, engaging in sexual perversion with temple prostitutes, just unhinged, emotional, unrestrained. But they believed this was what it meant to be spiritual. Their brand of spirituality was founded on a temporal, emotional, and physical high. This was the culture this new church was born out of. They were struggling to detach from their former pagan religion, struggling to let go of what they once knew, struggling to detach from what they believed to be their connection to God. Their transition into Christianity was much easier to palate if they could mix in some of their old religious practices, if they could create a hybrid form of spirituality. They wanted Jesus but they wanted their unrestrained emotional high as well. They wanted the truth, but they also wanted their secret knowledge. They wanted the Holy Spirit, 
but they wanted to redefine the Holy Spirit's works to accommodate their former pagan practices. So in verse 1, Paul says to this toddler church that's barely walking at this point, concerning spirituals or spiritual matters, spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, this is something you must know, in other words. This is something you must be clear about. You cannot be ignorant when attributing works to God, the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, he says, You know when you were pagans, you were being led astray to mute idols, however you were led. There again, we see this lack of restraint, a lack of accountability, an anything-goes form of spirituality with no standard to define truth. However you were led was their standard. And Paul writes to set the record straight to give these new believers some concrete guidelines, a sound channel of truth by which to live their lives for Christ. And you might think that the forces of darkness would flee from a church, not unlike the vampires in an old horror movie, like there's some invisible force that will not let them enter a church. But Quite the contrary, confusing and perverting those within the house of God is one of the enemy's favorite and most profitable endeavors. We saw in 1 Timothy, Christ's mandate for his church is to be the support and pillar of the truth, the banner of all that is true about God in this dark world. If the enemy can dislodge a local church from the truth and give them a perverted version of the truth to replace it, then that church will genuinely and joyfully pass out poison apples, all while believing they are fulfilling Christ's mandate to be the pillar of the truth. And Paul makes this point next in verse 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The worship practices in this Corinthian church had become so unrestrained that there were those in their midst who would claim to be speaking prophetically and actually profane or blaspheme or curse Jesus. Some were likely Gnostics, which were those who professed to have secret knowledge, and they actually attacked the nature of Christ. Can you imagine how that would grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit whom Jesus himself said in John 16, 14, He shall glorify me? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Brethren, what the Holy Ghost does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. You see, Paul here is affirming that nothing of the sort would ever be said in a local church that's in fact acting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's one negative example, but Paul goes on to give a positive example. These two of many spiritual litmus tests that Paul will mention through the remainder of this letter to Corinth. These tests serve to decisively indicate which acts are genuinely of the Spirit of God and which are not. So if there are any actions or words spoken in the body which diminish, demean, or alter Christ's work, his nature, whether it be his human nature or his deity, his character, his holiness, or his glory, all that which we can affirm of him in Scripture, 
you can be certain that is not a word or work of the Spirit of the living God. Those attacks are doctrines of demons, strongholds of deception, setting themselves up against the true knowledge of God. And Paul writes, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's not speaking of a mystical, spiritual test in this case. I had a friend once say to me that the way you can tell if someone is demon-possessed is ask them to say, Jesus is Lord. And if they can't, they're possessed. And if they can, they aren't possessed. Really? That's mysticism. That's not how the Word of God works. You're using it and abusing it as magical words or an incantation, and, and that is abusing God's Word. Paul is writing here of true, genuine confession of faith. This is not lip service. He's saying that true conversion is evidenced by a transformed life. Confession of lordship is a full affirmation of who Christ is. And genuine confession of lordship is always followed by obeying his commands. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 through 33, there's a prophetic uh, passage of scripture there speaking of the Son of Man. And I want you to pay attention to what it says. Verse 30, But as for you, Son of Man, your fellow citizens who talk with one another about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, they speak to one another, each one with his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart follows their unlawful gain. And behold, you are to them like a love song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when their destruction comes, as it certainly will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You can almost hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You see, lordship is not lip service. Lordship is not cultural. Lordship is sacrificial in nature. To call Jesus Lord is also affirming his supreme sovereignty. If you do not proclaim Christ as supreme sovereign over all, you are very simply denying him as your Lord. You're denying his lordship. Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 23, it says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fit, fills all in all. You cannot separate his true church from their proclamation of his supreme sovereignty. Jesus is Lord is a genuine confession of his supreme sovereignty, followed by your submissive service. Now, as we move to verses 4 and 5, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, and there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything in everyone. 
The Corinthian church had previously been accustomed to a variety of pagan practices, and in the outworking of that variety, their former worship was all over the place. It became confusing. It got carried away. It was chaotic. And that confusion began to creep into the church because before long, those young believers were mixing pagan worship with their new faith. And of course, chaos ensued. There was no unity. They trampled on one another's feelings. They spoke over one another. Soon there was gluttony, drunkenness, perversion, factions, a total lack of love. And all of this chaotic behavior was being done under the guise of spiritual activity. Paul affirms, there's a variety of genuine spiritual activities given by God. However, they need to be clearly defined. And it needs to be understood that these gifts, these ministries, these workings all flow from the same spirit. In the beginning, our creator God spoke into the chaos and brought pristine order. That is what the word cosmos means, bringing order from chaos. And incidentally, that's the word we also get our word cosmetics from. So these spiritual gifts, ministries, workings, because they come from the mind of God, they are consistent and orderly. They are precise. They are purposeful. They are the opposite of chaotic and unrestrained. To be clear, any person that is acting in a genuine spiritual work, it will reflect God's pattern, His persistence, His precision, and His purpose. And as we will later see, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The Greek definition of that word confusion is unsettled or unstable. And the Greek definition of the word peace is a public state of security and safety. So Paul is saying that within the local church, any person claiming to act in the power of the Holy Spirit should conduct themselves in such a manner that every other brother or sister in Christ would be secure and safe and never feel unstable or unsettled by their actions believing that that person may or may not be acting in the actual power of the Holy Spirit. We will later see that the foundational truth that drives this desire to bring one another peace is love. Our love for God and our love for others should govern our actions. Look at verse 7. It says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. Now, a tornado is not precise, and a hurricane is not purposeful. And both bring chaos and confusion. And chaos and confusion is not profitable. It's costly. But a genuine work or manifestation of the Spirit is peaceful. It's precise. It's purposeful. And it is profitable for every believer in the body. And ultimately, the purpose for these gifts is to edify, to build up the entire church body so that they are equipped to do what God has called them to do. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all the gifts of the Spirit because he's naming these as examples of a variety of different spiritual workings that may be present in a local church. This list was given to this particular Corinthian church early in the apostolic age, and as I spoke about it a few weeks ago, some of these gifts listed are permanent works of the Spirit and others are temporary works of the Spirit that were active in the local body until God's Word was complete and then given to the saints once and for all. 
The temporary works came through the hands of God's chosen men and their direct disciples who are also speaking God's revealed word. If you want to hear about that, you can listen to that sermon uh, podcast episode 84 and it's called God's Purpose for the Temporary and Permanent Spiritual Gifts. Now, of these gifts, there were speaking gifts, which are connected directly to speaking the Word of God in some form. And then there are the service gifts utilized in the body as acts of sacrificial love and service. And those things form a bond in the body. They bring unity to the entire body. I like to briefly go through these listed in our passage here one by one and try to bring some clarity to differentiate between what our current church culture often tells us they are or how they define them from what the Bible actually describes them as. Because in reality, there are two major factions within the visible church regarding these spiritual gifts and how they're defined. Now, it's important to understand that each believer has a variety of gifts as well. Some of us operate in two or three, maybe six or seven, who knows. But it's it's not uncommon for leadership, for instance, within the church to operate in several of the speaking gifts, while others in the church may have uh, gifts in the areas of the service gifts. Each of us are a hodgepodge of spiritual gifts, and as we work together as a body, we build up the body and all the bases are covered, and where we are weak, then obviously he is strong. Uh, Look at verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now it's easy to discern that the word of wisdom is in the category of speaking gifts because that word is logos, word. And I'm certain that in the apostolic age it was often revelatory, as in new revelation. However, now that we have the word of prophecy made more sure, as Peter states in 2 Peter 1.19, this gift solely flows out of an understanding of God's word. The word wisdom is Sophia, and it's almost always used as an ability given by the Spirit in order for an individual to understand God's will. So in this case, the gift of a word of wisdom is a spiritual gift given to an individual so that they might understand God's word in relation to God's will, and then from that understanding, help the local body apply those truths in everyday life. It is the gift of understanding the Bible in order to help the body apply the truth. And that's the word of wisdom. And then it says, and to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit. Again, the logos of knowledge is a speaking gift, and it too, before God's word was fully given, was likely often new revelation, but now that we have God's revealed word in its entirety, a word of knowledge is a spiritual gift given to an individual so that they might understand the deeper mysteries of revelation found in God's word. In 1 Corinthians 13, Two, Paul connects the two. He says, if I know all mysteries and all knowledge. So basically, once you have specific knowledge, it uncovers the mystery. It's no longer a mystery once you have the knowledge. Like Scooby-Doo and those meddling kids always tearing off the masks and uh, you know solving the mystery. Understanding the full meaning of the text and context and potentially the ability to systematize the truths so that the local body can more easily understand. A person who has the spiritual gift of knowledge may be proficient in history, 
in various languages, in archaeology, and systematic theology, as they all relate to the Bible itself. Look at verse 9. To someone else, faith by the same Spirit. Okay, from personal experience, church planters have to have this one. Missionaries have to have it. Bivocational pastors have to have it. And their wives do too, to some extent, I might add. And this is the kind of faith that Jesus spoke of when he said, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, they do not reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So this is not saving faith. This is a gift of faith. It's an extra portion of trusting faith, relying on God in especially difficult or trying situations. And those with the gift of faith inspire others in the local body to trust God as well. Their testimony is their trust in God's perfect provision according to his will. And then we move on and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Now notice this is plural, the gifts of healing. Noting that there were various forms of disease and ailments and the various causes of disease and ailments that were healed by human agent in the apostolic age. For instance, some diseases that were healed were a result of demonic possession, while others were maladies from birth, and still others were a result of that person's sin. Uh, James mentions this in James 5. He, he says that healing comes in tandem with the confession and forgiveness of sin. Uh, we see clearly through Scripture that not every Israelite in the Old Testament had the ability to heal, but God's chosen prophets did. And in the New Testament, Christ healed as did the 70 that he gave authority to do so in Luke 10. The apostles healed, and some of their associates under their authoritative gifting healed as well. Again, if every person is supposed to heal the sick and raise the dead, number one, we're failing miserably, and number two, the apostles failed to give any instruction in the epistles to the church in how we ought to do so. So, we have biblical evidence of the gift of healing through human agent becoming more and more sparse, and eventually we see it come to a conclusion. For instance, in Acts 19.11, it says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that cloths or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So early in the apostolic age, Paul was being used mightily by the Spirit to heal, again, to affirm that he was, in fact, a chosen apostle of God. His clothing and his aprons were being cut up and sent to people so that they could be healed. But if we look later in Paul's ministry, he had several traveling companions, and one of his companions' name was Trophimus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul writes, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick, at Miletus. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul writes to his son in the faith. He gives Timothy some advice. He says, Timothy, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Frequent ailments? Why did Paul not just heal these dear brothers in Christ? Why did he not cut off a piece of his apron or his clothing and send it to them as, as they did in Acts 19? Well, it was because in Acts 19, he was working in the power of the temporary gift for that specific time in church history. It's birth. 
the foundation was being laid by the prophets and apostles. And these gifts were to validate them as stated in Acts 5.12. It says, Now at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Very clearly, this is not everybody, every Christian out there performing miracles. It was at the hands of the apostles. So does God heal today? Absolutely, but always according to his will. And honestly, mostly through modern medicine. In Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke a beloved physician. And there's evidence in Scripture in the Greek that while Paul was healing miraculously, Luke often uh, healed in a more pharmaceutical way. And we should be thankful for the various ways God has given us to be healthy and whole. The body itself has an amazing ability to heal itself. And sometimes... We have help from the hands of modern physicians. And sometimes if the Lord wills, he can heal supernaturally. But the Christian who's been in sin and therefore is being chastised by God, he can repent and go before the elders of the local church and James says he'll be healed. But the spiritual gift of healing through one human agent, such as an apostle or a prophet, that gifting has now ceased. Let's look at verse 10. And to another, the workings of miracles. The workings of miracles is when the natural laws of physics are superseded. So time, space, or matter are disrupted or transcended in order to bring about or fulfill a specific aspect of God's plan. So think about this. Uh, the sun standing still in the Old Testament. Uh, the Red Sea parting. Think the axe head floating. And then in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water or calming the storm. You can look at the spirit teleportation of Philip in Acts 8.38. Or tongues of fire dancing over the believers' heads at Pentecost. A mighty rushing wind. Or even raising people from the dead. Again, we're going to cover this in more depth in the future. But realize this type of supernatural physics-defying miracle working is a temporary gift active primarily in Christ's ministry and through his chosen men in the apostolic age. And that's not to say God cannot do any of the things he, he wants to do if he so chooses, but it's according to his will. And I believe scripture teaches that type of thing is only for specific periods in God's redemptive plan. It's for a purpose at pivotal points. For instance, I believe there's a day in the future where another supernatural snatching away will take place when Christ raptures his church. And all the inhabitants of the earth will know for a fact that God exists by very specific supernatural means as described in both Daniel and Revelation. Now continuing on, it says, To another, the gift of prophecy. Now prophecy is a permanent gift, and it will likely require its own dedicated sermon in the future, but here's the gist. One-third of the Bible is God stating history before it happens. So it's a foretelling type of prophecy. And of these, we see the many prophecies concerning the coming of Christ the first time, then his second coming, his literal future earthly millennial reign, and the consummation of all things in the new heaven and the new earth where there's no longer sorrow or sin or death or pain and every tear will be wiped away and we'll live forever and ever with Christ uh, eternally. Amen? Uh, however, all divine revelation is 
prophecy. To prophesy means to speak forth or to proclaim God's revelation before the people. So when I get up here and I preach God's word, that is prophesying. As 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 describes, since the Spirit authored the word of God, it is thus saith the Lord. Here's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. In addition, prophecy hasn't ceased, as many would argue, because sharing the gospel itself is prophesying. In Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, Worship God, for the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And of course, again, not to be too repetitive, but what did Peter call the Bible? In 2 Peter 1.19, he says, The word of prophecy made more sure. Proclaiming the word of God is prophetic, and therefore that gift is no longer revelations of the future, because John's revelation on the Isle of Patmos, the last revelation of Jesus Christ, well, it closed that out. The canon is closed. But there's still a great deal of prophecy in Scripture yet to be fulfilled. But now, prophecy is the faithful preaching of the Word of God and sharing the gospel. Again, it's the transition from thus saith the Lord to the Bible tells me so. Next, it says one of the gifts is the distinguishing of spirits. And this is simply a spiritual gift of discernment. Distinguishing speaks of separating one thing from another. Specifically in this case, the false from the genuine in relation to things being taught about God, separating sound doctrine from false doctrine. This gift is perhaps the one that's in desperate short supply in our modern day church. We are all supposed to test the spirits and test all things according to scripture. However, there are those with the ability to recognize there are deceptive, deceptive spirits at work behind those who claim to speak in God's name. It should be obvious concerning many teachers and preachers of our day, but unfortunately, it's not for most. We will give ample time to this in the future as well. Next, it says, to someone else, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the translation of tongues. Now, we're going to dedicate plenty of time to this subject in the near future when Paul covers it later in the book of 1 Corinthians, but briefly, tongues means languages. And it has always meant languages, and they've always been languages, known languages. And this is what we read about in Acts. Someone is given the gift to speak in Chinese who had never learned the language. Or they can interpret Chinese, and they had never known the language. It was orderly. It was purposeful. It was gospel-centered. It was a proclamation of the Word of God, of the gospel. However, today... Known languages are not what they are operating in. Over the past 120 years, this doctrine has split from historic Christian orthodoxy. And now these, these uh, folks define tongues as a heavenly language of the Spirit, a language that the devil can't hear, and an accurate description of this would be that it's an ecstatic, repetitious type of babble. The gift of languages was absolutely pivotal in the founding of the church and the spreading of the gospel. Absolutely pivotal. So, for a specified period of time, think of this. 
It reversed, God reversed what he had done at the Tower of Babel in order to spread the gospel to all nations. The so-called gift that many claim to be in operation today, it's centered on self and it's edifying self and very often done so in a chaotic and confusing manner. Paul uses a portion of this letter to deal with the church of Corinth, which had gone off the rails regarding ecstatic utterances and the abuse of the gift of languages. Primarily, they were operating in the flesh, edifying themselves, and in their selfishness, neglecting the local body. And again, we'll cover all this extensively later on. And finally, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. So this distribution of gifts is a sovereign act of the Spirit of God for the purpose of building up and edifying the body of Christ. The second you use one of these gifts for your purpose of self-edification, you're acting in the flesh and abusing the gift. You You are rightly edified as the whole body is edified. We are not pagans. We do not act with a lack of restraint, a lack of accountability, with an anything-goes form of spirituality and no standard to define truth. We don't operate unrestrained however we're led by our emotions, seeking a spiritual high. These gifts are not about you. They're not for your personal benefit alone. They are not powers that you're supposed to try to uh, get or use for your own purposes. It's about equipping the body of Christ so that in the outworking of our gifts together, we can glorify Christ and share the gospel in a powerful way. And that means we have to understand the genuine gifts of the Spirit and properly define them and be discerning. We have to get this right. We cannot allow the world or even the church culture of our day, we cannot allow them to define incorrectly what the work of the Spirit and living in the power of the Spirit is. The gifts of the Spirit are a gift to the church so that each of us can contribute to Christ's body. We can all walk in the true power of the Holy Spirit and not settle for a cheap counterfeit.